Good morning, everybody. It's a, it's a, chapter, it's a passage with a, a few little um, odd ways of putting things which might confuse us, but uh, we'll get a grip of that in due time. Just start, I'll just start with asking the question, what strategy do you live by? That is, how are you going about getting what you want in life? What strategy are you living by? See, today's passage highlights one of the greatest, if not the strongest challenges or challenges in this life for our attention and our devotion. It has the power to dictate what we do because it has the power to promise great things. Now we've all heard of this guy. Who's that? Anybody? <coughs> Mo Farah, yeah, absolutely. What a great example he is of a kind of a single-mindedness. He knows what he wants and he knows how to get it. He has to eat corn, doesn't he, to get to be an, that Olympic athlete. He has to tra- train daily. It's incredible, but you know that he has a single mind. He knows what he wants, and he knows how to get it. You see, for him, he's living by that strategy of Olympic athlete, and he's living by it. I have a friend as well who I've known since I was seven. I have utmost respect for him, because I think by the age of... No, I've known him since 11, so I think by the age of 11, he's known what he wants out of life. And he has chosen his GCSEs, chosen his A-levels, chosen his degree, where he wants his degree, where he went for his master's, who he had employment with, who he had employment with first and then next, and strategized all the way to, uh, to currently buying his another house for over a million pounds. And he's my age, you know, it's, it's a little bit depressing when you think of that. But I have to take my hat off, hat off to him. I am, I'm in admiration of him because he knows what he wants. And he has done everything to get it. See, it's this single-minded approach that is clearly evidenced in this story this morning. I've got three working titles just to give you something to hang Hang this off. So you can see the progression of of Jesus' argument through this passage. And I'll be quoting from the ESV. So if you're looking down and into your your Bible, which I recommend you do, please don't be uh, confused too much. Know that uh, they're saying similar things. Well, verses 1 to 8. I've titled, The Shaming by the Shrewd. Not the taming of the shrew just in case you misheard me, the shaming by the shrewd. So we have Jesus, where he's been talking about uh, um, some other parables to the disciples and everything, and now he addresses the disciples directly. We said in verse 16, he said to his disciples, it's something that they need, the followers of Jesus need to hear, and therefore it's something that we too need to be attentive to. So we see how the desires of this dishonest manager shapes his life strategy. 
So let's get through it briefly. You see, this guy has been in the employ of a rich man. But now, because he's been wasting, being frivolent with his uh, possessions, he's going to lose his job. And so fear strikes him. He's fearful, isn't he, about the future. It says in verse 3, What shall I do since my master is taking away the management away from me? See, he's fearful of the future because, in verse 4, you see what he's caring about, his future security, because he wants to be received into people's houses. Now, in those days, to be received into a house was not just a, a put-me-up bed for the night so that he's okay, but it was a kind of a lifelong commitment to a brother or a fellow to care for him and give him security. This was the thing which was going to direct his life strategy. And yet there are some things that he is unwilling to compromise on, namely his reputation and his pride. We look in verse 3 at the end. It says, I am not strong enough to dig. He writes off manual labor straight away. Now, I don't know anyone who is not strong enough to dig. It feels to me that it is an excuse. It is a step beneath him. He deals with finances, not dirt. And he is ashamed to beg. You see, he is unwilling to compromise his pride. He'd rather do something dishonest than to go on benefits. To, to go to someone else and ask. Well, he is unwilling to compromise. So he has a goal. He has parameters of which he's working in. And so he comes up with a plan to secure his future. So in the limited time he has, he uses the wealth at his disposal. So in 5 to 7, we see how he summons his master's debtors. And the amounts which had been dealt with in, this, in, these, two, in these few verses are not small amounts. He is a shrewd man. He hasn't gone for the accounts with the piddling little um, um, uh, debts to be um, written off. He goes for those who have significant, huge debts. Because he knows. He knows if he can write off the big debts, how, how great will the gratitude be if he does that? If he, if he writes off a small debt, well then he's not really going to get too much um, back in return. He is shrewd. He knows that big gestures will result in greater gratitude. And yet, despite this kind of me self centered attitude, he is commended for this. And it's incredible because he is commended not by others to look upon them and say, he knows what he's doing. He's commended by the master. It's incredible that the one he has just cheated money out of actually stands back and gives him the applause. It's incredible. But he is commended, therefore, not about his motives, not about his methods, 
but the principle of being shrewd and wise in the use of wealth at his disposal to achieve his goal. That's what the master is commending. Wow, if he only thought of it. But we're not allowed to uh, let pass by who this man really is. I think we are meant to feel the shock and have our cheeks burn with shame. We are not to let pass what this man really is. He is a rotten example of humanity. He is shameless. He is dishonest. He's a debt-collecting, embezzling thief who cares solely for himself and his reputation. It's the same as if somebody came up to me right now and said, Dan, okay, you're not bad at preaching, but Hitler was more passionate about, uh, preach, uh, about speaking than you are. He outdoes you on passion at every level. It's like saying the mafia boss cares more for his family than you do, or you do. It's like saying ISIS shows greater commitment to the cause than we do. It's like saying your pet dog is more loyal than your brother or sister in Christ. Because he points out in verse 8b, I think it's missing in the um, NIV, because it says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. See, what Jesus does is to use this story to shine a light on the disciples' deficient or lack of focused commitment. And why does he do this? Because he calls his disciples the sons of light. I think sons was also missing in the NIV. But it gets across the, um, the understanding that we are inheritors of God. We are sons and enjoy the, all that which an heir of God does. What can the world give you? If you are an inheritor of the world, what can you expect? But what can you expect if you are the sons of light? See, do we know something far better than the world can give us or ever promise? Or even more than that, do we believe? Do we believe that there is something far better? What does it say when we don't apply ourselves as much as someone who has something incomparably less, something incomparably far less than what we have to those who are promised in Jesus Christ? Jesus requires us to feel the shake-up that this unflattering comparison demands. And so he spells out, he spells out to us what the opposite of this kind of apathetic, drifting discipleship looks like in practice. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may receive, uh, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, this is what it should look like. We are to make friends. That sounds all right. <laughs> don't mind making friends. I don't mind chatting to people. I like doing things with others. But who are these friends? See, it says that these are those who receive us into eternal dwellings. 
there are those who are grateful because they are sharing in the kingdom to come. You see, the context of this passage this morning is that we have a loving father eagerly seeking to save the lost. And he doesn't let us um, have our own agenda aside from him. He's saying, no, my agenda is your agenda. Make friends. Make friends with unrighteous wealth so that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. How are we to make these eternal friends? Well, we are to use unrighteous wealth. But let me, I think that needs a bit of clarification because unrighteous wealth sounds a little bit dodgy, isn't it? It sounds like, you know, used by kind of illegal schemes and machinations that actually you might be able to win yourself a few people for Jesus. It doesn't mean that. Jesus doesn't commend dishonest use. But he's talking about the money, the worldly wealth and resources of this world. It's translated from the, from the Greek mammon, which is to refer to the earthly possessions and wealth that we have. But this phrase also points, doesn't it? Unrighteous wealth points to the way that money can be a great temptation for us and how easily it can pull us away from God and to follow it uh, instead of him. Undoubtedly, it has that taint of corruption and dishonesty because it's passed through the hands of this world. But it talks about mammon, wealth, and not just money because we cannot say to God that what I have in the bank at my easily, easy, um, sorry, disposal is all that there is. We sit on all our wealth. It's all the money that is tied up in, you know, the things that we have invested in, the bonds that we may own, the property that we may own. And we are to follow that example of that shrewd manager. We are to use those big gestures, gestures that, that, that cost. Imagine the gratitude of those who have been forgiven a great debt. Why are we then just to use our, uh, why are we to use our wealth? Can't we just be nice? That would make it a little bit more palatable. Because it says, when it fails, money will fail. Wealth will fail on two accounts. Because we will all die at some point, And we cannot use money then. Our eternal destination does not take uh, credit. We cannot spend what we cannot take with us. But unrighteous wealth will always fail because it cannot buy that which can only be satisfied and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Use the money of this world now because it will fail. Yet if we have wisely and shrewdly, generously invested it in God's own plans to reach the lost, then it's like we have transferred it into a new currency with an astronomical exchange rate in our favor. We receive an eternal dwelling. Can you see, we receive an eternal dwelling and compare that to what drove the dishonest manager. He wanted to be received in other people's houses. 
but we are to receive a house and room which is prepared for us in the presence of God for eternity. The comparison is chalk and cheese. We have a wonderful and generous and glorious gift of grace given by the Father to the children he loves. And so this is what is required of us. Jesus has given the one and only command in this passage. And if you take anything away from the sermon this morning, look at verse 9. Because this is what Jesus is saying to you and me right now. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves. Make eternal friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's what's required of us. All the wealth that we sit on, all that is in our possession. And yet Jesus doesn't stop here, does he? Because he knows that though it is a simple and straightforward command, there is an underlying threat that has the potential to derail any hope any hope of, a true, uh, of true riches. And ironically, the thing which threatens to derail us, the thing which threatens a real and certain hope of an eternity with God, is the very thing that we are to use to receive it. Our money and wealth. The shaming by the shrewd. And we have verses 10 to 13, which I've, I've headed. Our fitness for that eternal dwelling is a matter of faithfulness. So our fitness for that eternal dwelling is a matter of faithfulness. You see, it really, really, really matters as to the way we esteem and use our money. It is a litmus test to our fitness for the kingdom to come. Just think about it for a moment. We can measure, we can assess, and review our fitness for the kingdom of God. We could find that a little unnerving, that by checking our bank statements and finding out where our money has gone, that we could get a good idea whether the faith that we profess is actually genuine. I'm going to ask at the end of the service that everybody brings a printout of their accounts to me for the assessment by the elders. But it's true. There is truth in that. See, this is the test of our fitness. Verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then, after that's statement of fact by Jesus, he says then, if then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Test 1, verse 11. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Not being faithful, that is, 
not being true to the cause. And in the case of the believer, we have seen that the cause is to make friends. That if we're not true to making eternal friends, who will share that eternal dwelling with us in the presence of God is the test by which we stand. What causes us then not to be faithful with our money and possessions? Why would we do this? It, was be, it would be because we do not see the majesty and beauty of God in Christ and the glory of his kingdom and the true riches promised to us as something worth striving for in comparison to what the world offers. You see, it is a question of faith. In Hebrews, it says the assurance of the things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen, is the definition of faith. The assurance of things hoped for. This is our future inheritance and future riches. The assurance of that and the convictions that we, of things that we cannot yet see. And we've seen, already seen a great example in verses 1 to 8 of what happens when our sights and hopes are blinkered to an earthly and finite heaven. This is what happens. We do not serve God with our money and wealth. We serve ourselves. And so prove to be unfit to be trust, entrusted with, the rich, uh, with true riches. Test 2, verse 12. And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, the, f- the fact is, at the end of the day, that which we believe we have is not ours. See, the manager that we've already vilified and labelled him as an embezzling thief it's exactly what we are if, we're, if what we're doing is not investing in the purposes and causes of the master who gives us our wealth now. You see, when we check our bank statements and we see the total at the top or the bottom, you see, that's God's. See, the, fi- the, cha- the change that we find down at the back of the sofa, well, that's God's too. If that pension fund that you have somehow miraculously pays you interest, that's God's too. That loose change in our pockets. (laughs) I have none. (laughs) Well, it would have been God's. It would have been God's too. The truth is that 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 which is in our possession, and add it all up, add it all up, your houses, your cars, your savings, your investments. You see, what he declares that, he says that is a very small amount. That's piffling. It's the very little that we've been entrusted with. And on top of it, we don't own it. We don't own this very little amount. And so it can be taken away, just as the rich man did with the manager. Or don't you believe that? Would you regard God as the thief? if he took away what you possess now. Yeah, he goes on to say, who will give you that which is your own? There's a promise here of ownership. Are you aware that you have ownership of vast wealth now? 
the true riches of the kingdom of God. It has been given to us. We own it in Jesus Christ. Everything is ours in Jesus Christ. Why would you want to throw that vast eternal wealth, which is ours, guaranteed for you in Jesus Christ, for the sake of enjoying life now with what amounts to peanuts in comparison and that which doesn't belong to us? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which you own? which is your own. Who will? Who will entrust you with that? Who will give that which is your own? If it's not God, who will that be? See, our, our strategies in life must come into line with God's purposes. The Father seeking the lost. We are required to be faithful, which God has entrusted with us now. And I must admit, I'm not a wealthy man. And I see how when it says it's harder for a rich man to, uh, uh, to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, how true that statement is. The temptation. If you own more, or you feel that you own more, the, the grasp on that is so tempting to keep it your own as well. Just in case, excuse me, let me just have a drink. Just in case you think that there is any chance of ambiguity or that perhaps we can get away with, with both, that is, that if I give generously uh, to a certain point and then use some of it to ensure a future security now and the comfort which comes in this world, at the expense of God's kingdom. Well, if I, if I play that kind of balancing game, is that okay, Jesus? Can I do that for you? Can I essentially prove my fitness for heaven in a little of the very little I've been given? Can I just slice a little bit off for myself, please? So that we are all clear, have a look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Is that clear enough for us? They are diametrically opposed. We cannot bring both together. We cannot have this cake and this cake and bring it together and then eat them both. If we look to money to give us what we think we need, then God and all that is in Christ Jesus cannot be ours. If your love and devotion to God is not diametrically opposed to your relationship that you have, that I have with my money and my wealth, then you cannot serve God and therefore you have no part to play in his kingdom. <coughs> well, we've seen what the practice is like for those who will have eternal dwellings. That was verse 9. 
We've seen what the commitment looks like. We've seen that test for our fitness for the eternal dwellings. But now Jesus is focusing in with laser precision to get to the underlying issue. This is the bit that he's been building up to. You see, it is the object of our desires that determines our faithfulness in the stuff that we have now. That which we love most, we will serve. See, the testing of our faithfulness simply reveals the the real battle, the battle for our affections, and the contenders are In the blue corner, we have wealth. And in the red corner, we have God. And it's up to you to decide who is the champion. (coughs) The hope of things as yet unseen truly comes down to whether you view the thing unseen, namely God, as worthy to be worshipped and adored above all things. It's God or money, folks. We cannot serve both. And that brings us to our verses 14 to 18, which I've, I've entitled, Our Greatest Love Revealed. <laughs> See, though Jesus had, had directed his teaching to the disciples that we'd seen at the very beginning, you see, the Pharisees had evidently been ear, eavesdropping and earwigging on what was going on. And they'd been listening to Jesus' words. Well, like a man who has just been found in bed, with a woman who is not his wife, the Pharisees go on the offensive and try and cover their adulterous affair with money. See, this little cameo appearance from the Pharisees allows us to see what a religious money lover is like. That is a person who tries to keep both a relationship going with God, whilst at the same time is devoted to earthly prosperity. Do you want to know if there is any religious, money-loving lover inside you? Are we willing to use verses uh, 14 and 15 as a mirror against our own lives and for our own sakes? Do we dare do that? Do we get out our bank accounts? Do we see that we have spent a thousand pounds on red roses and chocolates on investing in things that we truly love? Well, their immediate reaction is to ridicule Jesus for in, in the beginning of, uh, in the second half of uh, verse 14. They try to, ri- they ridicule him. You see, what a religious money lover does is to ridicule Jesus, is to lessen the authority that he has over us to make him less than who he really is that's what we do when we belittle people don't we to make ourselves feel more important we ridicule them we make them less than what they are do you do that when you come to thinking about finances and wealth do you take down the importance do you bring jesus down and his priority of our lives to a level that we can actually start to dictate Jesus then points out that they are those who justify themselves before men. In verse 15, 
See, there's a better chance of pulling the wool over the eyes of people than it is of God. But not only that, they have a greater chance of receiving approval. Because it goes on to say that that which is exalted amongst men is an abomination to the Lord. So if you want somebody to say, yes, that is right, invest there, give your money for this, well, you're likely to receive a pat on the back and a recommendation to carry on if you take that to men. Because it gives us a chance to do the same. But if we take it to God... It's a different thing altogether. See, we we tend to justify ourselves before others, don't we? This, let me insert something here, such as your holiday, your second home, your extension, or, or whatever it may be. This something is needed because if I do this, then I will feel more refreshed to be able to serve God. Okay, okay. Or, if I put it off until then, well, that strategy will mean that I can serve God then with greater wealth. Um, But at the same time, perhaps I might be able to have those couple of skiing holidays as well, but that's that's just a kind of added benefit to the job, isn't it? If we can see ourselves doing this, justifying ourselves before men and not God. We need to address it quickly. We need to address it now. See, before the adulterous man who was caught in bed with another, who would have been covering up his illicit affairs with lies and deception. Yet when it comes to God, he can see people's adulterous hearts. He knows if you love the stuff of this world more than him himself. He sees straight into our hearts. That's what he says. He knows men's hearts. And the heart is the seat of our desires. It is where our love for God can be found or our love for something else. If the love of money is there, we may try to cover it up. We might internally appease our guilty conscience by justifying what we do with our money. Or look to others to do likewise. But God is no fool. God is no fool. He cannot be deceived. He knows our hearts. And so our love is called out as um, adulterous, idolatry. Our greatest love is revealed. Well, then we come to these verses of 16 and 17, which is slightly odd. But it says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You see, superficially, we can appear devoted to Jesus. See, but... It's kind of like the, um, Jesus coming in with the gospel, entering the house, going upstairs, and ripping off the bedsheets with the man who has that affair, leaving him with two options. Justify himself and act violently towards this intrusion. Or repent. 
And so it does with our world love affair, with money, with mammon, the wealth, the stuff of this world. It reveals our greatest love. That phrase, and everyone forces his way into it, can also be translated, and I think it might be better to translate it, acts violently towards it. We can either justify ourselves in defiance of the gospel and, and claim that what we do with our money now is fine, or we can repent and say, no, it is yours, God, and for your purposes alone. But just to remember, just in case that we want to justify ourselves, remember that the demands of the law have not passed by. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We cannot live on this kind of idea of cheap grace, that we can be in bed with money and worship God at the same time, because the gospel demands our whole life. We are to die to ourselves. These are really hard and big words. To die to oneself. To give up our own passions and desires for the sake of our Father's desires. Let's close this with the challenge that that leaves us. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, perhaps here's a, here's a challenge. Dare I say that we are more open and honest with the money that we do have? It will lead to greater use, a more collaborative use of God's money. But more importantly for yourself, do you want to safeguard your heart from that which will take you away from those eternal dwellings? And those are things that I I will put in the questions for our community groups to discuss. Because at stake is our heart and our eternity. Would we fear what it may reveal about us? Would we suddenly feel the need to justify ourselves as we lay ourselves open to being read by God? There was, I'll finish just with one um, extract from a, a film. Schindler's List is my favourite film of all time. And just a quick show of hands. Who have seen Schindler's List? Good number. Um, I, f- I cannot but cry at the very end. You have Oscar Schindler, a war profiteer in the Second World War, who has made lots and lots of money. He was in it for himself. He had a superb strategy, and he became wealthy very quick. But then he had a relationship with the Jews, the ones which needed to be exterminated. And we have this final scene that actually as the workforce which Oscar Schindler had saved through his own wealth came to give him a ring, Ikshak Stern, the, the Jew who had, um, took hold of his accounts, presented him a ring of, this, uh, of gratitude saying, he who saves one life saves the world. How precious is life? Well, he saved hundreds that day. But his response was this. I could have got, I, I could have got more out 
I could have got more. This man was breaking at this point. If I just, if I made more money, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. This car, this car, why did I keep the car? Ten more people right there. This pin, his Nazi badge. Two more people, he said. It's made of gold. Two more people, at least one. If we think about the beginning of this passage, how much more is at stake? How much more precious is the eternal lives of people? How much more can we do together? Perhaps we should commit ourselves to being open and honest about the money that we own. We need to love God with all our hearts. And that may motivate us. and may give us that life strategy which leads to eternal life. Through which people who will cry and give you a ring and say, Thank you. Thank you. You poured yourself out. You pulled the stuff out for my sake. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you love us so much that you came to seek and save us when we were lost. And now, God, we pray to you that you may take hold of our hearts, that you may lead us to a, to a more... Um, living a, more li- a life which is more in line with your will than it was yesterday. That we may seek and save the lost using the resources that we have for your praise and glory and for our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Amen.